welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, I'm really excited to be talking to Adon Getachow, who is the Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. So welcome to the show, Adon. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for being here. So today, I want to talk all about Eric Williams and his seminal book written in 1944, Capitalism and Slavery. And I read the book this summer. And I've been reading all sorts of articles about the book, responses to the book. And I found your work to be, to be really interesting, enlightening, and I'm so glad we're getting a chance to talk. So before we talk about the book itself, perhaps you could, you could give some background into the life of, of Eric Williams. Of course, yes. Um, Eric Williams is uh, from the island of Trent. Trinidad, um, now part of Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, he was born in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, I think 1909 uh, might be 19. Nine, uh, it might be 1910. And at that time, uh, Britain was a call. Oh, sorry, Britain was the empire. Trinidad was part of the British Empire, as it had been um, for a few centuries by that point. Um, and uh, Eric Williams grew up in Trinidad. Uh, he would. He was. Um, he would win a really prestigious. Uh, scholarship, um, the Island Scholarship to attend Oxford University. Um, he would be the only one that year. And this uh, led him to, to go to Oxford. Um, while he was at Oxford, he did at first a, a bachelor's degree and then stayed on uh, to do his dissertation there. The book that we know as Capitalism and Slavery actually started as his dissertation um, and it was written in the in the 30s. After he finished at Oxford, Eric Williams got a job in um, at Howard University, actually. So he taught in the United States uh, for a, a decade. Uh, Howard University, of course, the historically black college in Washington, D.C. And among his colleagues were really prominent African-American thinkers of the mid-century, Rayford Logan, Ralph Bunch, and many others. And he would also be involved in this period, um, beginning to think about post-war reconstruction. There was an Anglo-American commission that was thinking about the Caribbean and West Indies. He participated on this commission, but he would go back home and um, lead uh, the PNM, People's National Movement and Nationalist Party. And he would be a, a central figure in thinking about West Indian Federation and, and a, an attempt to kind of create a federation of the Anglophone Caribbean states. And then when that federation did not succeed in 1962, he became the first prime minister of an independent Trinidad and Tobago. Um, and he would stay in power for the next few decades. Um, so he, this is a person who is both an intellectual, he wrote many books, um, I think capitalism and slavery is the best known, uh, but he wrote Caribbean, broader Caribbean histories. Um, uh, he wrote a lot about federation. And uh, yeah, so he's both an intellectual and of course a politician. Um, and capitalism and slavery, as I said, came out in 1944 uh, from drawn from his dissertation. So he was heavily influenced by CLR James. We use in our classroom, we use the Black Jacobins. Um, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm wrong. I think James is a is a socialist, right? Yes, um, definitely. James is a is a Marxist. 
uh, specifically, uh, he would be very influenced by and consider himself to be kind of uh, a Trotskyist in this period. Um, so critical of, of the Soviet Union and Stalin is, uh, Stalin's rule, but still, nevertheless, a kind of uh, Marxist uh, uh, historian and and also um, you know activist and organizer. J James was in the United Kingdom in the 30s while while Eric Williams was in school. They knew each other. Um, there, James is also from Trinidad. Uh, for for those who don't know, and conversations with with CLR James would be really influential as he wrote his dissertation. Um, and James would be in some ways an important mentor to Williams. Uh, they would later have a kind of, uh, you know, they would let later, because of political dis disagreements, part ways. But CLR James even returned to Trinidad uh, to support Eric Williams's party and to, you know, lead Trinidad into independence. Another crucial figure of this period, a fellow Trinidadian, is George Padmore, also a Marxist who had been involved in the Communist International, but an important activist, anti-colonial activist and intellectual who is also in the UK um, in the 30s and, and into the 40s. So these figures are kind of part of a constellation of, you know, anti-colonial figures, diasporic intellectuals who would connect with each other and with fellow um, colonial subjects in the metropole and begin to articulate both a kind of rewrite histories, um, CLR uh, CL James's Black Jacobins on the Haitian Revolution, Eric Williams's Capitalism Slavery on, on British Slavery and, you know, on, and, and Emancipation. Uh, George Padmore wrote uh, uh, The Life and Struggle of Negro Toilers in this period, How Britain Rules Africa. So these were figures who were invested in kind of rethinking and rewriting history. And but at the same time, they were quite aware that they were in a moment of political transformation. And they were also writing for the purpose of understanding their present predicaments and thinking about what futures might might be possible for the colonized world. Very interesting. I, I also would add, you know, Oliver Cox, right, who I think is Trinidadian as well. Um, yes. And he's a contemporary of these thinkers. And and I'm, you know, obviously he's not from Trinidad, but I'm thinking also of Marcus Garvey. And I, I was wondering, do you have any idea, you know, what is going on in the Caribbean at this moment? It's producing so many, so many really important intellectuals. Do you have a sense of what's happening? Why and why, why the Caribbean at that moment? Yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, I want to recommend to all your readers a book from the 90s by uh, Winston James called Holding Aloft the Banner of Ethiopia. And Ethiopia understood here more metaphorically than the country we know now. But what's really, that book is a study of, of kind of West Indian radicalism in the early 20th century and how it shaped politics in the U.S. Uh, and, um, and also shaped kind of global formations like Garveyism and like anti-colonialism. I think uh, this is sort of drawing on that book. Um, one, you know, there's already an argument that CLR James himself makes in the appendix uh, to Black Jacobins, where he talks about the West Indies as this kind of birthplace of modernity. This is 
he says it's the West, West Indies are sui generis, right? They're not, they're not unlike any other place because they've been com completely constituted by the processes of modernity, by enslavement, by indigenous dispossession, by the rise of capitalism. And that out of this comes a, a very, uh, you know, global kind of conception uh, that shaped you know, this, this set of scholars. Um, so I think that's one, one kind of way of thinking about what made the West Indies distinctive. There's a more 20th century story to say, which is that in precisely the kind of processes that Eric Williams does describe in capitalism and slavery mean that by the late 19th century and into the 20th century, the British West Indies are experiencing precipitous economic decline and crisis. Um, there's high levels of unemployment. And this, this means that it generates new forms of migration. So West Indian migrants are now working in Cuban plantations. Uh, they're working on the Panama Canal. They're coming to the United States. Um, they're leaving for, for um, the, um, the metropole. And so this kind of double diasporization, um, uh, you know, uh, generates also an, a kind of new sense of globality. And also they're at the forefront of a kind of the experience of capitalist expansion in the late 19th and early 20th century, which generates forms of radicalism, but also na nationalism, et cetera. And so I think there's also this kind of more proximate story one can tell about the experience of, of of the late 19th and early 20th century. Wow. Okay, so what I'd like to do now is perhaps we could get into the thesis, the, the Williams thesis in capitalism and slavery. And you've written that the argument, his argument is, is threefold. So what are what are those threefold? One story, the central story that I think, of course, the book, the title of the book is an argument that the experience, uh, the kind of capital generated from slavery in the Atlantic world, in the Caribbean, created the conditions, both, both literally by generating capital, right, but also by innovating new forms of insurance, financialization, et cetera, generates the conditions for um, industrialist, British industrialization in the mid 19th century or, or in the 1820s and 30s and so forth. And the second argument is that this process of industrialization, as British industries begin to mature, they come to kind of discard their their kind of um, the the mechanisms that gave gave rise to them. Right? Uh, they they uh, you know are are anti. They want to overcome mercantilism, introduce free trade, right, and also undo undo the kind of imperial world uh, for williams the, the the what flows out of this is that anti-slavery or abolition in the metropole was not a kind of humanitarian project he has a very fascinating chapter called the saints and slavery um that tracks you know the kind of economic logics uh, for 
for emancipation, but also the the kind of contradictions and hypocrisies of of, of the anti-slavery movement in the UK. So, for instance, by boycotting West Indian sugar or resisting West Indian sugar, but but being very happy, for instance, to take cotton from the United States, also slave grown. So he wants to trace the kind of economic origins of uh, and logics of, uh, of emancipation. And this generates a third, I think, um, feature of the argument, which is that he wants to say, you know, this process of emancipation, because it coincided with the introduction of free trade, the marginalization of the West Indies within the British imperial world, it meant that the that the that it created the kind of crises of the of the late 19th century that I was just talking about that generated you know that made the the West Indies this site of out migration um, and it also meant that the West Indies were perpetually dependent you know they were entirely designed to serve an external market um, so they were constantly um, vulnerable to the kind of uh, uh, instabilities of that market. I'm really interested in teaching capitalism and slavery in, in my sophomore history class. And I think there's a lot of interest now in, in the book and, um, and in his argument. And you wrote a piece where you talked about, you know, obviously one of the reasons that the book is really important right now is that you know, if in fact Great Britain got much of its wealth from the transatlantic slave trade, then, then reparations are in order. Yeah. Um, but you also say that Williams himself was, while he was obviously into the idea of self-determination, he was not interested so much in reparations. Why not? Yeah, I think um, uh, it's a good question. You know, I, th I think that Williams had another vision of how the Caribbean was going to solve this problem of dependency and inequality quality and stolen wealth, which was a federation of West Indian states. You know, he believed, as many um, anti-colonial activists of, of his generation, intellectuals of his generation believed, that with the appropriate state institutions, with genuine self-determination, political and economic, that, that these post-colonial states would be able to do undo the kind of uh, consequences of imperialism. So for him, for instance, he thought, okay, it is the case that like the economies of the Caribbean are small, you know, they are often, um, they often have one export that they're very dependent on. Um, Actually, Trinidad is slightly different because it's it, it has an oil industry, so it's not just an you know an agricultural society, but nevertheless, um, you know, dependence on one crop or one one a kind of uh, primary good that's exported. But he was like, you know, what if we what if we were able to create in, institutions where we traded with each other instead of with Europe or the United States? What if we created an infrastructure, i.e., a federal structure that combined our efforts politically and economically. And that with a strong federal state, uh, a West Indies Federation, one would be able to sort of reorient these societies so that they were, you know, traded with each other, that they formed a larger economic unit, that they could, um, the state would be strong enough, capable of, of, of 
successfully institutionalizing development programs. And this was a project that, you know, many states pursued. Large states like India pursued them on their own. Um, there was in this very same period an effort at federation of African states. Um, so the idea that a post-colonial state with the right institutions and structures could, could both, and also by challenging persistent inequalities on the international sphere in the UN and in other settings, these two things together through these two actions, both transforming the domestic structures of these societies and its external relations, the post-colonial state could really overcome the legacies of imperialism. So reparations was not a very common argument really for post-colonial states for, for this period of decolonization because much of the tension and orientation of these set of actors was towards how do we create the institutions of self-determination. I think reparations really comes to the foreground when that project of self-determination fails, right? Uh, and it fails for a variety of reasons, you know, um, the West Indian Federation itself collapses after four years. Um, um, so it existed from 1958 to 1962 um, and it collapsed because of, you know, debates about, about centralization versus decentralization that resulted in a referendum in Jamaica that kind of led to the end of the whole federation. And so it, so it, but also the kind of, um, even after the failure of the federation, the post-colonial state was increasingly, its capacities were increasingly circumscribed whether again, the rise of neoliberalism beginning in the late 70s, 80s and 90s made it increasingly difficult for the state to you know, intervene in the economy as it wanted, uh, engage in the development projects that it envisioned. So for a variety of reasons, that initial kind of faith in the post-colonial state was unreal was you know unrealized and and unrealizable. I think a generation of kind of activists and organizers in the contemporary moment don't have that faith in the state, right? And um, and you know don't think that the state itself can just correct for these long-standing historical patterns of inequality and domination. I want to talk a little bit about your book, World Making After Empire. Is what you're describing, is this the new international economic order? Like this um, model of trading, trading within the global south and, and not so much depending on... on that's not, no, this is, um, so the federations chap, uh, experience, the West Indies Federation, the Union of African States are more, are, take more the shape of, of this try, attempt to like, reconfigure relations between post-colonial states. Um, the new international economic order was an attempt to say, look, you know, we live in a global economy. There are, and this, the new international economic order also arrives after the failure of these post-colonial federal projects. And the point of which is to say, look, we already inhabit a global world order. And Post-colonial states in that econ economic order are kind of constitute the workers of the world. And the rich North Atlantic states are like capital. And so we should, we should um, basically model a solution to this in deep inequality 
on the kind of welfare states that were institutionalized in you know, across Europe to some extent in the United States, because those were trying to solve these kind of inequalities between you know, capital and labor. So this was an attempt to really think about the relationship between global South and global North. I read a remarkable article by Paul Krugman the other day where he was talking about the rise of globalization and the Washington consensus. And he said, you know, how did we get here? And he basically says that countries in the global South realized that it would be a really good idea to start doing free trade. And and that was a way out of poverty. That seemed really different than the story of formerly colonized states struggling to, you know, sort of the end of ISI, of import substitution industrialization. I had always learned that that was kind of forced upon states in the global South and that the Washington consensus was was one that came about because arms were twisted, not because countries in the global South all of a sudden said, let's start to trade and do globalization. What is is your sense of, well, what's right? I mean, why is it that the ISI model ends and we get this period of, as you said, of neoliberalism in the late 70s? Yeah, I think there's something important and right about uh, Krug article there. I think um, import substitution had been, ISI had been especially prominent in, for, for in Latin America, but not just in Latin America, we'd taken up elsewhere as well. And it was a, a model that suggested that one could sort of replicate the process of, of industrialization. Um, and it, it, it falls into crisis before the neoliberal moment. Um, and it's really in this context that people begin to discuss this idea of the new international economic order. That is a, it does have a kind of liberalization argument. So, because at this moment, as, as remains the case now, uh, there were protections that prevented post-colonial states, say, from selling their agricultural products to the to the uh, to the North Atlantic. The welfare state had always been one that sort of created, you know, bound the national economies in such a way that it made it uh, difficult for producers outside to access it. So, the new international economic order did envision. A kind of they actually in the UN documents the language of structural adjustment was once used by advocates of the new international economic order, arguing that not only like it's not just it's not just post-colonial states that need to need to undergo structural adjustment, but the North Atlantic states need to undergo structural adjustment because. It's the idea was like we can create an egalitarian economic order. And I think the difference, though, is that it wasn't just one about like undoing trade barriers. Right. It was also one that imagined various other schemes to equalize the equalize and uh, and distribute the wealth that that generated. Right. So there was various attempts at strengthening the bargaining power of post-colonial states through product associations like a bauxite association. OPEC is probably the most successful version of this. There's other attempts to kind of compensate primary goods exporting states for the kind of low prices of their goods or to make sure that prices never fall below a a certain standard. Etc. So it wasn't just liberalization and that was that, but an attempt to kind of 
just say like we the reality is that we now inhabit an one economic order it's just a deeply unequal economic order um and but we can create mechanisms that kind of even out the playing field that redistribute resources and wealth in such a way that that compensates uh, poorer and developing countries so the neoliberal moment i think it does a couple of things right it it takes up the liberalization arguments, um, but but doesn't really see a place uh, for the political adjustment of economic of the economy in this kind of way. Um, I think it's also I think equally important to think of it as an attempt to depoliticize the economy, to make the economy no longer the subject of political debate. So what postcolonial states and what anti-colonial nationalists were doing in the debates about the new international economic order was precisely to politicize um, this kind of international inequality. I assume you teach undergraduates? I do teach undergraduates, yes. Where, and, where are they today? Are, are, they, are they politicizing the economy? Where do you see their politics? That's a good question. I mean, I think in, the, in a lot of ways since the 2008 financial crisis, we're all living through in some ways the crisis crisis or of the neoliberal moment or the neoliberal kind of um, consensus that we lived with. And I think many students um, come with a sense of kind of skepticism about the deep inequality that structures our world. Um, they're also faced, of course, with the kind of looming climate catastrophe or not really looming, the one that's already here. Yeah. Um, and so I think they come with a real sense that the world as we have lived it can't go on in, in, this, in its current configurations, whether it's thinking about human beings or, or, or thinking about, you know, our planetary home. Um, so I see them, you know, really thinking seriously and creatively about different ways that the world could be. Um, and I think I'm always like really inspired by how many reading groups students have and, mm. and how many of them are trying to learn from earlier histories um, and how, you know, they're very involved in various kinds of organizations from the local level all the way up. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I think this is a very different generation of people. And this is, I think this is true, not just in the United States, but across the world, because again, that, that faith in state institutions and state the state's capacity to deliver that was so prominent and very real for someone like Eric Williams, I don't think that characterizes this generation. Um, I think there's much more attentiveness, especially given the, the centrality of the movement for Black lives to questions of state violence and coercion. And so I think it's, uh, I think it's also a generation that's um, so much more interested and invested in thinking about inequality and hierarchy on different on uh, in different categories from race and class to gender and sexuality um, and thinking about them in their intersections um, so i'm always very inspired and am happy to be teaching undergraduate students so this is my last question i would i've never taught capitalism and slavery i i want to this fall I'd really like to dedicate some time this fall um, in the 10th grade class to looking at the origins of capitalism 
And um, so this summer I asked a few students if they would read the book and, and, and let me know what they thought. And, you know, I think, I think they had a hard time with it. I mean, I know they had a hard time with it. We, we, we talked about it. But I still think it's an important book, maybe, maybe a chapter or two. But I'm wondering, from your perspective, why, why is it important for people to read Capitalism and Slavery? That's a great, it's a great question. It's important for two reasons. I think it's important first because, you know, in many ways, the world that was built um, beginning in the 15th century in the Atlantic world continues to shape our worlds in the present, right? Um, I think one can imagine, and others have probably written uh, works about how, say, the questions about the radical transformation of climate and and diet and all of the things that flow out of this connection between capitalism and slavery, right, really do transform the world. Um, and there's no, it's a great place to start as in terms of understanding that. But you know, another book students might be interested in is a book like Sweetness and Power, which traces you know how sugar and the kind of mass production of sugar changes the diet dietary standards of working class people right creates really like helps to create a working class that can work in the factories um because now this there's a way of getting cheap calories to people right um so to really you know just as like it's a it's a book that's part of a long history of writing that tries to really think about how that moment created our modern world that's one. The second reason I think students should read it is because it may be hard to see this from the book itself, but like many of our students, many of your students, um, Eric Williams was someone who was trying to change the world, um, you know, and he wrote the book for that purpose. So I think it's interesting to think about how our kind of present political projects and the ways we think about what we would like to see in our world really require us to tell different kinds of histories. You know, you can't get to where you're going if you don't know where you've been kind of thing. And um, I think that that's kind of what James, uh, what Williams and, and others like James were doing in that moment of the 30s and 40s. They're like, we're something different is on the horizon, right? And, but in or if we're gonna be able to get there, we have to understand how we got here in the first place. And I think this is a real a moment in some ways like that moment where the kinds of structures and institutions we have had in place for some kind of time, for some time are in real crisis, right? So I think another lesson students can take from this is that you know any attempt to think about our present and our future really depend on rethinking our past. Mm -hmm.